The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture that we read at the beginning, namely in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and emphasizing especially the 11th verse, the 11th verse in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Now this is the end of the statement which we are told was uh, made by these people who were gathered together from different parts of the world in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This was the thing that uh, amazed them and astonished them. We are told that they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then they lead on to that statement. Here we are, they say, from different parts of the world, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, etc., etc. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, here we are looking at this record, which is in this chapter of the remarkable thing which happened on that day of Pentecost so long ago in the city of Jerusalem. This is Whit Sunday, and it is the day on which the church throughout the centuries has reminded herself of this great and marvelous and notable event. Now, this one verse reminds us that one of the remarkable things in connection with that happening was the way in which the apostles were given this miraculous gift of speaking in different languages. They were ignorant, ordinary, unlearned men, and yet here they were, able to speak in languages which formerly they had not known and had not been able to use. Now, that is a very remarkable thing in and of itself, but that isn't the thing to which I want to call your attention this evening. It is not that I do not believe that I do. It's an essential part of the record. But it isn't, I say, the thing that I want to emphasize. I'm concerned, rather, to deal this evening not so much with the miraculous way in which they were able to do what they did, but actually what they did. What they did was, in these different tongues, to speak forth the wonderful works of God. Now, that is, of course, the thing that uh, is emphasized in the whole of this chapter. The extraordinary way of doing it is, I say, full of interest, and we must believe it and accept it. But still more important is what exactly they said in this way and manner. And fortunately for us, we have the self-same thing laid out before us very clearly and very explicitly in this sermon preached by the Apostle Peter, of which we probably have nothing more than an extended synopsis. But here it is, in the sermon, the Apostle Peter shows us exactly what it was that he and his fellow apostles and the others who were in the upper room had been saying, the thing which had caused this amazement and astonishment amongst the people. Now, here, I think you'll all agree, we have an authoritative statement of the basic content of the Christian faith. 
And it is to that that I'm anxious to direct attention this evening. Alas, amidst all the many confusions that characterize this modern world of ours, there is no confusion that is so regrettable and so fatal in its effects and results as the confusion concerning the Christian message. We cannot say this too frequently. The whole state of the world tonight is ultimately due to the fact that people are not Christians. If only everybody in the world was a Christian, our world wouldn't be as it is. We wouldn't have these terrible problems on our hands. I'm thinking not only the international problems, I'm thinking of the problems within the nations. The godlessness, the vice, the evil, the insecurity of life. Everything that makes life unpleasant and difficult for so many. All the heartache and the heartbreak that is in the world tonight. All this according to the Bible, and this is the message of the Christian church. All this is due to the fact that man is a rebel and an alien from God. And here God has provided a way to reconcile men, but men won't believe it. He won't listen to it. And very largely he refuses to do that because the devil has come in and has caused confusion as to what this message is. The devil is always there. And his greatest object is to confuse people as to the nature of this Christian message. He tries, of course, to keep them from considering it at all. And he succeeds with large masses of people throughout the world. But if we do begin to take an interest, he then comes as an angel of light. And he causes confusion, causes misunderstanding about it. Makes us think that it is something that in reality it isn't at all. And the tragedy is this evening that there is all this confusion about the Christian message. Now, let's, let's be honest, let's be frank. There is much of this confusion in the Christian church herself, as I want to try to show you. And even a day like this can be completely misunderstood and entirely misused. We must come back, my friends, to the authentic record. We must preach not what we think or want to preach. We must expound the word. We must let it speak for itself. And that is what I'm anxious to do this evening. Because while there is this confusion with regard to Christianity and what it is and what it proposes to do, there is no hope at all. Well, now then, what is it? And I suggest to you that it's here in just this one phrase. Christianity is the message concerning the wonderful works of God. That's what it is. Here's a perfect summary of it. You see, here were these people, these apostles and the others, the 120 who were with them in the upper room. Suddenly the Holy Ghost came upon them. And they began to speak. And they were not speaking gibberish. They were speaking the wonderful works of God. That's always the effect of the influence of the Holy Spirit. It is he who enlightens the mind and the understanding to... The wonderful things of God, these wonderful works of God. And so, filled with the Spirit, they were talking about these things. And as I say, were given that further miraculous power. But this is the thing. They were giving an exposition of the Christian message. Then I say, Peter in his sermon does so in a still plainer and a more explicit and extended manner. Well now then, what is it? Well, the matter divides itself up for us quite naturally and indeed quite inevitably, doesn't it? 
let me just underline certain things. The first thing about the message of Christianity is that it is concerned about works. The wonderful works or things, if you like, of God. Now, this is something which is absolutely basic. If we are not clear about this, well then we must be wrong everywhere. What do I mean by this? Well, I'm emphasizing it. Because, as I say, there is so much confusion about this at the present time. This, I suppose, of all the confusions concerning the Christian message is the commonest and the most popular just at this moment, this period in which you and I are living. Now then, what is the confusion? Well, it's a confusion which has people to believe that Christianity is primarily a matter of ideas, that it's a matter of teaching, it's a matter of attitude, it's a matter of the way of thinking. Now, I think you'll agree with me when I say that that is the commonest uh, popular notion of Christianity at the present time. Now, this is uh, quite uh, a movement on the continent of Europe. There's been a movement, a theological movement, on the continent of Europe now for a number of years, which takes up this position. It says what really matters is the, the teaching in the Bible. The facts connected with the teaching do not matter at all. Now, you know something about this. It's not my purpose this evening to address you on the subject of theological movements or theological thought. And yet we've got to know something about these things because we are affected by them oftentimes quite unconsciously. You see, up until the First World War, there was the so-called higher critical movement. It had begun in Germany about 1840 and continued and came to this country, spread throughout the world. And there was uh, a movement, a teaching, which said that this was just an ordinary word after all, that uh, it must be treated as an ordinary word and that... This was really the record of people's experiences, religious experiences, and that there was nothing miraculous, supernatural about the book. It wasn't uh, something that was produced by the Holy Spirit and so on. That was the notion. But now the First World War came, and it delivered a, a terrible blow to that so-called liberal teaching, that modernistic teaching that had been so popular. And, but it was replaced by another, which seemed at first as if it were coming back to the Bible, but it hasn't come back to the Bible. What it says is this, that the thing that matters here is the message, and that there is much attached to the message in the Bible that isn't important. Now, that's one of the movements. There's another one that goes further. You may have heard about it. Sometimes you'll notice there's a lecture on it, on the third program in the wireless or somewhere like that. It's a movement which is called by a very striking title. It's called The Movement for Demythologizing the Bible. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It says people are outside the church. People are not Christian today for this reason, that the Christian message has always been tied up to a number of supposed facts and historical events. And it, they say it is this that stands between people and believing this message. They say the modern scientific men isn't going to believe in your miracles, but your four Gospels are full of miracles. Now they say we must detach the teaching of Jesus from these reported miracles. The modern man knows too much to believe that sort of thing. He's scientifically minded. He can't accept these 
reported miracles and events, these things don't happen. Now, that's a sort of myth, they say. These are accretions. They're not essential to the message. The thing that matters is the teaching, the ethical way of living, the example of Jesus. Now, they say we must demythologize the scriptures, therefore. We must take out all these miracles, all about the virgin birth, about the reported miracles of Christ, the literal physical resurrection, and things like that. They say these are all myths. They've got a, a sort of truth in them, which is of value. But you mustn't hold on to your facts. Get rid of the facts. Cast them overboard. You don't believe in the dividing of the Red Sea any longer. You don't believe in the dividing of Jordan. All that, of course, is folklore, fancy, imagination. That's not true. Now then, they say, get rid of all that and come with the message, the teaching, and the people will believe it. Now, that's the popular teaching today in a land like Germany, for instance. This demythologizing movement is the most popular theological movement in Germany today and in many other countries on the continent. It's spreading to other lands. And I'm here just tonight to show you that what we read in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles is the exact opposite of that. The wonderful works. Works. It's not a mere teaching. Now, this is where Christianity, you see, differs from the so-called great religions of the world, whether you're thinking of Confucianism or Buddhism or Hinduism or any one of them. These, again, are reviving and are becoming popular. And there are people like Aldous Huxley and others, novelists, philosophers, who are taking up Buddhism and so on as being the only, only hope for the world, they say. We've got to come back to the realm of the spiritual. But that's what they come back to, Buddhism and things like that. Buddhist temple has been built in this country comparatively recently. But now I'm saying the essential difference between Christianity and those so-called religions is just this very point, that they are nothing but teachings. They are nothing but systems of thought, a mixture of philosophy and ethics and morality. That's what they are. Now here we are dealing with something essentially different. And this is not only different from the so-called great religions of the world, it is essentially different also from every kind of philosophy. All forms of moral systems and ethical systems and teachings. And what is the difference? Well, I say the difference is this. That this is concerned primarily with facts, events, works, happenings, history. Things that have literally taken place. Now, this whole day of Pentecost is one of them. You see, the day of Pentecost is not a story. It's not an imaginary something. It is something that literally happened. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, that's history. This is something that literally happened in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. It's as much history as the conquest of Britain by Julius Caesar. It's as much uh, history as 1066 and all that, and William the Conqueror, and the date when Columbus discovered America, and the American War of Independence, anything that's happened in history. This is a fact. This is history. Do you know you and I wouldn't be in this building tonight if this hadn't actually happened? This isn't a teaching. This is something that is based solidly upon facts. Look at this table that's in front of us. Here is a table with bread on it and wine on it. Bread and wine, why? What's this table saying? What's it representing? I've already answered the question in giving my invitation to you to stay behind for the communion service. What are we going to do there? Well, the apostle tells the Corinthians that what they do is this. As often as he do it, he says, 
Ye declare what? A teaching. No, no. Ye declare the Lord's death. A fact. History. An event. Something that's happened. What we are going to declare here is not Jesus' teaching with regard to this, that, or the other. No, no. We are going to declare what happened to him. We are going to declare a fact concerning him. We are concerned about something concrete, actual, that has happened in this whole realm and field of history. The works. And yet, you see, the Christian church so largely today is preaching the exact opposite. Facts, they say, don't matter. It's the teaching that counts. And that, I am emboldened to say, is nothing but an utter denial of the very foundation of the Christian faith. My dear friends, if I hadn't got facts this evening, I'd go out of this pulpit at this moment. This isn't an ethical society. We are not here just to have a little moral uplift. We are not here to cheer one another. We are not just here to consider a beautiful view of life. We are not just here to see how we can get people to stop making these bombs and put an end to war. No, no. What are we here for? We are here to declare the wonderful works, the acts of God, events. There is no Christianity apart from the events. This is an historical religion. It is not a philosophy, a point of view. It is the record of things that have been done and have happened and their meaning for the souls of men. Very well. There's our first word. The word works. And oh, what a vital word it is. But come, let's look at the second. We hear them, they said, speaking in our tongues. The wonderful works of God. The works of God. And here again is something that is absolutely central. There are so many who are not Christians. There are so many who are confused as to what it is because they haven't grasped this second point in exactly the same way as they haven't grasped the first point. You see, their regard becoming Christian as something primarily done by men. They think that you make yourself a Christian. You make yourself a Christian by living a good life, by doing a lot of good, by avoiding certain other things, by holding certain views. And in this way, you make yourself a Christian. That is the idea that so many have still. It's utterly amazing, but it's true. That is why you've got this awful confusion today. There are men who tell us quite openly and frankly that they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't believe in his atoning, sacrificial death. Yet we are told that they're standing for Christianity today. Why? Why? Well, look what they do, we are told. Look at their lives. Look at the good they're doing. If they happen to be doing great good in a hospital in the heart of Africa, finest Christian of the century... Though there is a denial of God as he's revealed in this book and a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they're opposed to war, well, oh, we're told that's the Christian spirit. They've got it. So you see, what makes a man a Christian is that he holds these views which they regard as Christian. Doesn't matter that he denies these facts, these events. It is what they do. But here again we are reminded so plainly and so clearly that that is nothing but a denial of the very essence of the Christian faith. The wonderful works of 
God. How is it that anybody can ever read this Bible and not get hold of that? What is this book? Is this, as we've been told so often and are still being told, the record of men's quest for God? Oh, how men like to talk about that. Men searching for God, the quest for truth, the quest for ultimate reality, the quest for the absolute. And man is seeking and searching, trying to make his world a better place, trying to put himself right, trying to save himself. And it's an exact denial of everything that the Bible teaches us, everything that is emphasized so perfectly in the verse that we are looking at this evening. What's the, what's the Bible about? Well, you know, the first verse in the Bible ought to put us right on this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. God. And as you go on, it's always the same thing. It's God who acts in the Bible. What I read in the Bible is not man setting out to find God and standing on tiptoe and arriving at this or that. I find the exact opposite. If you take the activity of God out of this book, what have you got left? It's God acting from beginning to end. And the first thing, my dear friends, we have to realize this evening is that salvation is of God from beginning to the very end. Did you notice how it's emphasized by Peter in this sermon? Let me note it for you. Here he is in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Now that's a striking statement, isn't it? Even the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ were done by God. Miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him through his instrumentality in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. Now there it is to start with. And, of course, that's not contradicting what our Lord himself said. He said, it is the Father that doeth the works. I do not these things of myself, he says. The Father that sent me, he doeth the works, the works of God. But let's go on. You get it in verse 23. Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It's still God acting. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. God's the actor. It's God doing everything. You've got it still later on. In verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Verse 33, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now do see and hear. And finally in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's God acting. That's what these men were talking about. In all these various tongues, they were telling forth the wonderful works of God. God is the actor here. Salvation is of God. It's not man. Man can never achieve his own salvation. Do what he will. He can be good, he can be moral, he can be religious. He'll never make himself a Christian. Man cannot do anything about his own salvation. You remember the question was put to our Lord himself one afternoon. Who then can be saved? The rich young ruler had just been. 
Of noble young men, wonderful young men. Our Lord says, you know the commandments, have you kept them? He says, all these have I observed from my youth upwards. And then our Lord said to him, sell all that thou hast and give to the poor and come, take up the cross and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. And it was a shock to the disciples. They knew about this young man. He was an exemplary character. He was full of good deeds. He was highly religious, very moral. But there he goes away sorrowful. And they went to our Lord and said, Well, who then can be saved? If this man, by living the life he is living, can't be saved, who can be saved? And you remember our Lord's reply. With men, it is impossible. But not with God. For with God... All things are possible. The wonderful works of God. My dear friends, if you and I are to save ourselves, it's already hopeless. If the world and its future depends upon us, it's undone. Thank God our message is, I say, not so much to tell men to save themselves, but to tell them what God has done about us men and our salvation. Do you want to know what the gospel is? Well, you will find it right at the very beginning in the mouth of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. This is the message. God hath visited and redeemed his people. The wonderful works of God. Well, what are they? Well, that brings us to our next word. I'm dealing with the basic elements of Christianity this evening. It's because there's confusion on all these points that people are not Christian and the world is as it is. You see, there are so many who think they can save themselves and make themselves Christian. You can't. Your nationality doesn't make you a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian country. You're not born a Christian. Nobody's a Christian. There is none righteous, no, not one. We're all born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Do what we will. We can never fit ourselves to stand in the presence of God. So that it isn't Christian teaching we need. It isn't the example of Jesus that we need. It isn't Jesus as the exemplar. It isn't his ethical teaching and the attempt to imitate Christ. No, no, that damns us, every one of us. And I, how I thank God that that is not the gospel this evening. This is the gospel. The wonderful works of God. And I do want to emphasize this word, wonderful. There's a recent translation which translates it characteristically as just great things. Great things of God. Always reducing it. But you know the word that these people used was not just the word great. It includes great, but it's much bigger than great. According to the best lexicons, this is the meaning of the word that they used. Wonderful. That's one of them. And there's a difference between a thing being great and being wonderful. You see, when it's wonderful, there's an element of wonder in it. There's something that makes you stand back as these people were amazed, astonished. You don't always feel astonished at a great thing. But when it's wonderful, there's something more. There's something beyond. It's not greatness. There's this other element. Wonderful. But listen to their other terms. Magnificent. The magnificent works of God. Would you like another? The splendid works of God. Full of splendor. You see, when you're talking about God's works, greatness is not enough. The glory of God is his glory. That is God's ultimate attribute, his glory. Everything about God is perfect, it's absolute. There is a splendor, there is a magnificence, there is an almightiness. Take another one, grand. Or take a still better one, the sublime works of God. 
Now, that's the word that these people used. I'm not putting words into their mouth. This is the very word that they used, and it demands these great expressions. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues. The magnificent, the splendid, the sublime works of God. Now then, that's what we're looking at. That's what Christianity is about. Christianity is not just a message to say, try and live a better life, set out imitating Christ, or God is your Father, He loves you, He'll forgive you, do what you like, everybody's going to heaven at the end, it's all right. No, no, my dear friends, that's not Christianity. This is Christianity. It is the record, I say, of what God has done about us men and about our salvation. What is it? What has He done? Well, fortunately, the Apostle Peter tells us all about it. The first thing he tells us is this, that what God has done, God decided to do before the very foundation of the world. The way of salvation is not an afterthought. This is something that God purposed and planned before the very world itself was made. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You know, this is the great message of the New Testament. Listen to the Apostle Paul now, putting the same point exactly as he writes to the Corinthians. It's the same thing. Here it is in the second chapter. What is he preaching? He says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. That's it. According to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Oh, the tragedy that men are preaching salvation as something that you and I do, whereas the fact is that it's something not only done by God, but was determined upon by God before he even made the world. The sublime works of God And everything that God does is sublime. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. It has this element of glory pertaining to it. And if your Christianity isn't something wonderful and astounding and amazing and marvelous, it isn't Christianity. If you're not astonished at it this evening, you've never known it. Well, what is it? Well, there it is, I say, at the very beginning. Oh, I never tired of repeating this from this pulpit. It's as marvelous as this, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost met together in a conference in order to plan it. And men would reduce it to the category and the level of human philosophies and ethics and morality. This is something that has been planned by the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Ghost. It's the mind of God. It's the thinking of the everlasting and the eternal. There is nothing more sublime than this. The glorious gospel, as Paul calls it, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's it. Before the world, determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Well, now then, what is it? What did he plan? Well, you see, the apostle again tells us that there's a good deal uh, told us about this in the Old Testament. You notice how he's already quoted the prophet Joel. People say, what is this? What's what's the matter with these men? What's happening to them? 
Some said these men are drunk, they're full of new wine, they're raving mad, they're intoxicated. Look at them. What is this? Oh no, says Peter. These men are not drunk. The hour of the day makes that impossible without going any further. But he says these are not drunken as he supposed. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Oh, what was the prophet Joel speaking about? Well, says Peter, the prophet Joel foretold what's happened today and this thing that you're looking at now. Well, now, you see, the prophet Joel was able to do that in one way only. The other prophets have done the same thing. You read Ezekiel 36 and you'll find another prophecy about this. You'll find it in Isaiah's prophecy. You'll find it in the others. How was it that the prophets were able to foretell this? There's only one answer. God had determined it all before the foundation of the world. He knew what he was going to do. And from time to time, he told some of his servants what it was. He gave them a preview. He told them to write it down to encourage the children of Israel. They were perhaps in captivity. They were being persecuted. And they were groaning and wondering what was going to happen. And God gave a, an insight, gave a glimpse into his purpose and plan what he was going to do to a prophet. And the prophet spoke it and wrote it down. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Predetermined is all planned out. Oh, God doesn't do things as afterthoughts. There's nothing haphazard about God's actions. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning to the very end. It's sublime. It's marvelous. He sees it coming. So we are told about these prophets. And then you see he mentions David, you remember. He had told David that of his lines... Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his lines, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Oh, we are told, don't bother about history. doesn't matter whether these things are true or not. The teaching is the thing that matters, and the teaching remains. No, no. Christianity is based upon this, that God gave a promise to a man like David and said, out of you and your lines, out of your lineage, out of your descendants, the Messiah is going to come, the Deliverer is going to be born. It's as concrete as that. Facts from beginning to end. Oh, I mustn't keep you. You read your Old Testament. You'll find it away back at the beginning. God has promised that he's going out of the seed of the woman to bruise the serpent's head. That's going to be a human being. Then he picks out Abel, a man. Then he picks out Abram, another concrete personality. And he uses him, starts a nation out of him. This is God acting, the wonderful works of God. Why is he doing all this? Well, he's doing this to save men. So he has to take Abram, turn him into Abraham, take him out of Ur of the Chaldees, turn him into a believer in God from paganism. And he founds his nation. What's the nation for? Oh, ultimately to produce the Messiah, the Deliverer. It's all history. It's all a matter of facts. And then you go on with them all, Jacob and Moses and the law given to Moses and the, all about the burnt offerings and sacrifices. What's the meaning of all this? The meaning is that they're all pointing forward. These are prophecies. These are adumbrations. These are but types of what's going to happen. It's God acting the whole time. And then you come to David. Very well. The wonderful works of God seen in the Old Testament. But all that's preparatory. When the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. You notice again how it's put, don't you? When the fullness of the times had come, God. It's always God's work. It's always God's action. It's always God doing something. And here it is. What did he do? He sent forth his Son. 
made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law? What am I talking about? I'm talking about that babe that was born in Bethlehem, who was named Jesus. Before he was born, Mary uttered her great statement, her magnificat. Listen to what she says. Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. She's understood it. She's been given enlightenment. She didn't at first. She stumbled. But now she's had insight. My soul, she says, doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done unto me great things. It's the same word as we've got in our text tonight. Marvelous things. She used the same word. Magnificent things, divine things, things such as God always done. He that is mighty hath done to me splendid, sublime, a sublime thing. What is she talking about? Oh, she's understood what the archangel Gabriel had said to her a few months before. He had gone unto her and had said, Hail thou that art blessed amongst women, and had told her that a son was to be born of her, that he was to be called the Son of God, that he was to be mighty, and of his kingdom there should be no end. And she had stood back in incredulity and had said, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? The thing is nonsense, she said. How can I bear a child? I'm a virgin. I'm not married. I've never known a man. And the archangel had said to her, And here's the sublime thing. Here is the wonderful work of God. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. That's it. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Thou shalt be covered by the Holy Ghost. Therefore that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Sublime, marvelous, wonderful, a virgin birth. Facts don't matter. Facts such as this, these are the things they're throwing overboard. They don't count, but these are the wonderful works of God, the sublime acts of God. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the All-Highest shall overshadow thee. A little babe in a manger, but the Son of God. Here's the sublimity. The author of life, a helpless babe in a manger, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Are you astounded? Are you astonished? Do these things move you as they move these people in Jerusalem? They were filled with amazement. These people are talking this about the wonderful works of God. And they are wonderful works. This is what the people were saying. They said, look here, you crucified Jesus, but you didn't know who he was. He's the Son of God, the Lord of glory. The author of life himself. There it is, the incarnation. The virgin birth. The abject poverty. The stable. The straw. The cattle. Yes, but it's the Son of God. Come down so low. Here's a sublime act from the highest courts of heaven into a stable and being born in the straw and amongst the beasts, placed in a manger. 
the wonderful, the sublime, the magnificent works of God. Think of his poverty and his lowliness, but go on, look at his miracles. Who is this? The people kept on saying, of course, he looked just an ordinary man. He'd been working as a carpenter. He'd never had training as a Pharisee. But look at him. Look what he's doing. Listen to what he's saying. He raises the dead. Who is this? We have seen strange things, they said today. Who is this that commandeth the raging of the sea and can quell the howling of the gale? Who is this? There's something about him they can't fathom, they can't understand. He seems weak, humble, lowly, and yet there's a power, there's a magnificence, there's an authority in word, in action. Who is this? Never men spake like this, men. Oh, the sublime works of God. Here they are. It's God who's enabling him. But wait, let us come to the sublimest thing of all, the most wonderful thing of all. There he is nailed to a tree on a hill called Calvary. What's happening? Ah, well, you say, that's the end of his story, that's the end of his career. He's been arrested, he couldn't defend himself, he could do nothing, and in utter weakness, he's been put to death. Oh, my dear friend, what have you seen as you look there? When you behold and survey the wondrous cross, what do you see? Is it just cruel men putting a very wonderful person to death? Is it just an ignorant mob not recognizing a religious genius or a political or a social genius? Is it a cruel world bent on war not recognizing the supreme pacifist? Is that all you see? Look again, I beseech you. And let the Apostle Peter be your guide. He's standing near you. Listen to what he's saying. He's conducting the tour. This is what he says. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's what's happening there. It's God acting there. It's God who's delivered him up to that. This is deliberate. This is the thing that God had planned before the world, before time. God giving him up. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to that death on the cross. It's God doing it all. Oh, by the wicked hands of men, by heathen men's hands, the nails have actually been driven in. But it's God who's acting. It's God's purpose that's taking place there. It's God who's delivered him up. But he dies and is buried in a grave. But that isn't the end, you know. Whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. The sublime, the marvelous, the wonderful works of God delivering up his only son to death, handing him over to cruel men, he being buried. Yes, but wait a minute. Listen to this. Death, that's the last enemy. No one can conquer death. The bands of death are indissoluble. No one can ever release a man from death. No one's ever risen from the dead. Wait a moment. One has. That's what these people were talking about. Filled with the Spirit, they were talking about the wonderful works of God, and this is what they said. We were watching him dying. We saw him dead. We saw them taking down his body and putting it in a grave. We saw them putting the stone and the seal and the soldiers. But he's risen. He's been with us in the room. He's spoken to us. He said, touch me, feel me, handle me. The wonderful works of God. The bands of death torn asunder. The last enemy conquered. God raising up with his almighty power his own son whom he had previously handed over to death and to the grave. And then he appears for 40 days amongst these very people who are now filled with the Spirit. And they were telling the people about that. 
how they were together in a room once with everything locked because they were afraid of the Jews, suddenly appears amongst them. Same body, yet different, glorified now. And then how he took them out to a mount called Olivet outside Jerusalem only ten days before. This is what they were saying. There we were, they said, with him on the Mount of Olivet and suddenly we saw him rising, ascending into the heavens. The wonderful works of God, the ascension, following the resurrection, and when he went back to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, and God, having exalted him in this way, has given to him the promised gift of the Holy Ghost. And now, they said, he, having received the gift, has sent it down upon us. That's what you're looking at. This is that which was prophesied by Joel. It's happened. He's done it. He has shed forth this, which you now both see and hear. The Holy Ghost has been sent to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what Christianity is, my friends. That is the message of the Christian faith. Before I ask you to do anything, I'm asking you to consider these wonderful works of God. Can you conceive? Of course, you cannot conceive of anything more sublime. There is nothing. This is the act of God. Look at it. Incarnation. Virgin birth, that perfect life, the miraculous power, the hiding of the godhead and yet the revelation. This paradox that no mind can ever unravel. God giving up his only begotten son to death and then raising him mightily victoriously from death in the grave and lifting him up to heaven and giving him the gift of the Spirit. The wonderful works of God. What's it all about? What's it mean? Well, here is the thing that matters. That is God making a way of salvation. That's what it means. God has done all these things in order to make it possible for us to be forgiven and to become his children. Listen. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses. That's it. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My friend, if God hadn't done these things, there'd be no forgiveness for anybody. God, because he's God, can't just look at us and say, I forgive you. God is holy, God is righteous, God is just. God can't deny himself and his own holy nature. God must punish sin. I say it with reverence. If God didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be God. God and sin are eternal antitheses. And God has told us that sin is to be punished. And this is where the sublimity of the acts comes in. There was only one way which even God could find, whereby a single soul should be forgiven. And it's the way I've been describing to you. God sending his own Son, and the Son coming, humbling himself, entering into the virgin's womb, being born as a babe in poverty and helplessness, Living as he did, yet dying. 
Oh, my dear friend, can't you see the sublimity of the thing? That God so loves you and me, rebels, fools, sinners that we are, hell-deserving as we are. He loved us to this extent that he's taken your sins and mine and has put them on his own son and punished them there, punished him for us that we might be forgiven, that he might reconcile us unto himself. It's God doing it from beginning to end, the wonderful works of God. So that all you and I have got to do is this. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how you're saved. Not by living a better life, not by joining a church, not by refusing to do this and that, not by being against war. No, no, in your utter helplessness, in your lost condition, you just call on the name of the Lord. You can't do any more. But thank God that's all you need to do. It's all been done. Salvation is of the Lord. It's of God. He's done it all in Christ. There's nothing left for you or for me to do, but we couldn't do it even if there were. We are simply asked to realize our need to repent. Here it is. Let me give the apostles' words. These people listening to this sermon under the power of the Spirit cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We've killed the Messiah. We've crucified your Son. What shall we do? And Peter answered, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You and I have nothing to do except to realize our terrible sinfulness. We've better realize that our sin is such that nothing we can ever do about it will avail at all. That there is only one thing that could deliver us. It's the thing that God has done, that Christ has died for us. Believe on him just as you are. If you say, oh, yes, but give me a little time. I want to live a better life. Well, you've denied it all. You've got to take this as a free gift from God. This is justification by faith only. You mustn't do anything. You try and add anything. You've cancelled it all. This is the free gift of God's grace. It's the wonderful works of God. He's done it all. Salvation is complete. Christ on the cross said, it is finished, and it was. Nothing more to be done. He has drunk that cup to the very dregs to the bottom. He's paid every item in the bill that's against you. There's nothing left. He doesn't need any assistance, and there's no one who can give him any. It is finished. He trod the winepress alone. He has completed the work which God has sent him to do, the wonderful works of God. And all you and I need to do is to realize... Our utter absolute need of this and receive it and accept it. Not a teaching, not a philosophy, not an ethical moral way primarily, all that follows. No, no, the first thing is this, that we are lost, that we are so lost that nothing any man can ever do can save us, that God alone can save. So we cry as we are. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite now, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save. And thou alone, call on the name of the Lord. Cry out unto him. Oh, how we should thank God that this is the way of salvation this evening. 
What if it did depend on us? What if it did depend upon our understanding and our grasp of philosophy and our good works and our good deeds? Where would we be? We'd all be utterly lost. For we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are vile, our very natures are fallen. Thank God it isn't that. The message tonight is the same message as it was on the day of Pentecost at the beginning. In my feeble way, but I trust the Spirit has been using my lisping, lisping, stammering tongue. It's the same thing. The wonderful works of God. And have you seen them and have you felt them? Have you been staggered by them? Have you ever known in any shape or form what it is to cry out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you really believe that God has so loved you that he sent his only son from heaven and its courts into this world for you and that Christ and the cross was dying for you and for your sins? Have you said love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all? Have you said, when I survey the wondrous cross, have you seen the marvelous, the sublime, the glorious character of all these acts, these deeds of God? If you have, you're a Christian. If you haven't, my dear friend, whatever you are, I don't care, you're not a Christian at all. If you think you've contributed anything to your salvation and to your becoming a Christian, you're not a Christian. You're a beggar. You've got nothing. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you've got anything in your hand as you're facing God now, you don't know him, you're not a Christian. Salvation is entirely the free gift of God. It's been made possible by the wonderful works of God in Christ and brought to us by the light and the illumination and the power and the conviction of the blessed Holy Spirit. Have you seen it? Have you realized the wonderful works of God and that they were done for you? If you haven't, my dear friend, call on the Lord. Cry unto him. Ask the Spirit to open your eyes and to give you understanding. There is no other way of salvation. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It is in Christ, and him crucified, and in him alone. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.